we have been in a series called We Are Four Points. We've been asking a pointed question, maybe a weird question. It may not be in the playbook of how to grow a church. Uh, really, the question we've been asking is, why are you here? Um, over the last two years, the church has grown by about 65% from where we were uh, to where we are today. The parking lot's not fun. Um, the kids' rooms, I mean, your kids are probably making a human ladder right now to grab something out of the ceiling uh, because there's so many of them. Uh, why drive by all the other churches that you've been driving by to come to this church? That's the question we've been asking. If you're a follower of Jesus, I, I believe that you don't pick a church, you're appointed to a church. God calls us to be united with other believers so that collectively we can give a witness to his goodness and his glory and his gospel to the people that are around us. And if you're looking for a menu that matches your preferences in church, then I would submit to you that we lack a lot on this menu. Um, what we are is a group of people um, who are very messy uh, and very flawed. And you hear that a lot in church speak, but then you come in messy and flawed and you're told there's the door if you don't fix your flaws by this date. And uh, I've encouraged our church that at this church, our pastor is not trying to fix us because our pastor can't fix himself. Uh, I'm the pastor, uh, the normal one. Uh, and so, so, so I, I want you to know I'm not here to fix you. Uh, I'm not here to convince you that I'm, I'm super like charismatic and just everything that your last pastor was not. I'm probably more flawed than your last pastor ever was, and I'm just going to be more vocal about my flaws than most pastors ever will be, which will not let you worship me as anything other than someone who needs Jesus desperately, which is where I find the most strength in my life. Not under the guise of, I've got this, but under the guise of, God's got this, have I found the most confidence that I've been able to live and overcome and work through the things that I've faced in my life. And so we've been asking you to ask a question, and that is, if you're going to call this place home, why? Has God given you a call, a mandate, to link shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield with other believers so that we can face whatever comes in this world with the gospel and the good news of Christ, strengthening and encouraging each other and announcing the good news to the nations that are around us that Jesus is alive and active and at work and he still has the power to save. And if that's your place, if this is your people, then we're inviting you to take next steps and get involved in this community to serve and be a part of this messy place called Four Points Church. Our mission at Four Points is to reach the least, the lost, and the lonely with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that this is the aim for us, that we are a church for the marginalized, for the people in the margins. Uh, we are not the church for the well put together. This is not a country club church. It's not a fashion show church. It's not about us looking good or playing the part of church where we put on the church face and the church clothes and we cover up all the mess that's going on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever, throughout the rest of the week. No, we, we, we want to be a place for the broken to come as they are, knowing that Jesus meets them where they are and by his power leads them to become what they cannot become in and of themselves. Now, the good news is that's a good mission statement. The bad news is many of us have mission statements and goals that we never realize because we have habits and values that contradict the very things that we say that we want to do. And so it's important not just to have a mission, but to have habits and values that keep you focused on that 
mission. That's what this series has been about. We've gone through three values. The first one is that we lead with love. We come to Jesus not because we are in fear of condemnation, but because his love draws us to him. He, he leads with love towards us, towards the broken and the oppressed. That makes Pharisees mad. When Jesus would go to the house of a tax collector and sit at their table and eat a meal with them before they had ever repented, before they had ever given all the money back that they had taken from everybody else, that ma- didn't make sense. Why would God hang out? Why would a holy person hang out with unholy people? And they themselves had forgotten that they, apart from God, were just as unholy as the tax collector sitting in the booth. It's just theirs was under wraps. You see, some of us sin silently and some of of us sin loudly, but all of us sin. You can write that down. You can tweet it. At this church, we lead with love. What does that mean? I'm not shocked that you're sinful. I'm not shocked that your life doesn't line up with every verse of the Bible. In fact, if we read the Bible long enough, we will find that there are areas that the Bible that the Bible calls us to live to that none of us are living to currently. And the grace of God has not quit on us. Therefore, as the people of God, we're not going to quit on you. That's the first one. We leave with love. Number two, we live open-handed. What is that about? It's not about giving. It's about living a life that says to God, there's nothing that I have that you can't say, give, send, use, in whatever way that you would have me use it. It's about literally getting to a point where your only treasure in this life is Jesus. So that everything else that used to matter just doesn't matter like it used to matter in the past. We want to be the kind of church that lives open-handedly. If we're going to reach the least, the lost, and alone with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it means that you're going to have to step down into people's muck. You're going to have to step into people's mess. Uh, I remember several years ago, I had a, uh, my daughter was super sick. My wife was super sick. And you know if you're a guy that if the kids get sick, you can make it if mom's not sick. But <clears throat> if she goes down, if the wife goes down, it's a bad few days. We're eating instant mashed potatoes and canned tomato soup. Um, <laughs> My empathy level is not at the level of my wife's empathy level. And and, and so my daughter needed comfort, and my wife couldn't be the comforter. And I am a germaphobe. And so I had to face this predicament. In order for me to give my daughter what she needed, I had to step into her sickness and lay beside her with her breathing in my face, with breath that had not been flavored with Colgate in a long time. But in order for me to be helpful to her, I had to step into what she was going through. In the same way, you're going to, if we're going to be a church that reaches the least, the lost, and the lonely, going to have to be the kind of people that are willing to open-handedly at the Lord's direction, step into people's messy situations in life that sometimes are going to inconvenience your life. We're not looking for a convenient life. We're looking for a godly life. Do you remember? See, some of you have forgotten that since we met last. You've slid back into the life of convenience. That's not what the Christian life is. The life of convenience is not what we're after. It's not our aim. We're not looking for comfort now. We, We know that we have the comforter that's with us. That's the Holy Spirit. And he's leading us into the uncomfortable stories and situations of other people's lives so that we can be a light in the darkness that they are going through. We live open handed. It all belongs to God. There's nothing that God looks at and doesn't rightly say, mine. And therefore, we give everything back to God as an act of worship. Our time, our gifts, our talents, etc. The last value we looked at last week is, or two weeks ago is that we pursue community. What we have is a communal faith. If there's anything that locked down in California for nine months and no shaving and showering very infrequently taught me, uh, it's that, man, I need people. I need people. And we're called over and over again to a one another kind of faith. 58 unique times and over a few hundred instances in the New Testament, we're called to care for, love, forgive, bear with, 
love one another. Over and over again, what we have in the practice of our faith is a community call for us to live it out in a way that impacts our neighbor, benefits our neighbor. And so we want to be the kind of people that pursue community. And we talked about finding your few, if you remember some of that a few weeks ago. Today, last value, we expect a move. We expect a move. We expect a move. I just read a verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and it says if you're going to come and pray to God and ask him to be God, you've got to actually believe that he is God. Don't come in here talking about the greatness of God and then not entrust to him the greatest sorrows of your soul. If he's God, give him the sorrow. If he's God, give him the praise. If he's God, give him the future. If he's God, let him handle the past. If he's God, let him handle the difficult relationship. If he's God, then entrust it to his hands. And if he's not God, then stop giving him lip service as if he is God. See, see, you and I, it's not what we say that actually proves what we believe. It's the fruit that we bear. And fruit is born by trusting in God. And if you're not willing to allow it all to be on the power of God and the provision of God and the leadership of God in your life, then what you're going to fall back into is what my boy Watchman Nee would call a carnal faith. You see, we can either live by the flesh or live by the spirit. By the spirit, you're empowered with the power of God to do the purpose of God, to bear the fruit of God in your life. But for many of us, we claim the spirit of God on Sunday, and we live by the flesh of man on Monday. Therefore, we do not bear the spirit's fruit, but we bear the fruit of man. And as a result of it, we have envy and strife and bitterness and anxiousness and anxiety and pride and divisions that are born in our community because the church left the spirit behind whenever they went into it. <clears throat> we expect that God is an on-time God, a 24-7, seven-day-a-week God, that he's always at work, that he's active and engaged, that he de- desires to be engaged in the most minuscule of details, though he is the greatest of all that have ever been known. We, we, we believe that God desires to be engaged in your life, in every aspect. So therefore, we don't walk around hoping God will move. But in God confidence, we walk around believing he will move. See, I, I used to think that there were only two options. False humility or straight arrogance. False humility is what a lot of people in church do. False humility is this whole, um, you know, the Lord, um, praise God. You know, it, it's this weird sense that never is able to receive uh, an acknowledgement of God's work in them, that they're never able to, to, to be comfortable in the, the presence of God around the people of God or the powerful things that God's doing because it makes them uncomfortable that God will put them in the story and use them as part of it. And so they're constantly deflecting and trying to move it away. And, and it's the sense of false humility because you need encouragement. You need to be built up in Christ. We're told that to call out each other whenever we see the work of Christ in another. So when I see Jesus at work in you, I, I, it, it's good for me to affirm, hey, I see Christ in you. It's not that I see you being a great Christian. I see Jesus at work in you. And that, that should be normal. But for a lot of us, because of false humility, we can't receive that. We can't walk in that. The other side is, and I found this too, is arrogance, where you begin to believe that when you walk in the room, you can do this, and the whole room's going to get saved, and everyone's going to lose their mind. And the next thing you know, you're selling cloths that you wiped your brow with because the Holy Spirit was sweating through that brow on late night Christian TV for twenty nine ninety five, and you're taking people to Israel. <clears throat> So you got false humility, 
and you've got arrogance, and neither one, miss, uh, and bo- neither one hit the mark on what we're actually called to be, and that is the people that are walking with God, expecting the work of God and a move of God to happen in our daily life. And so th- there is a confidence that is not arrogant, but it is God confident. It, it's, I know he is with me. I know he's at work in me. It's what we see in the Apostle Paul, where in the places that he goes, in the ministry that he does. It's how it moves a group of cowards like the disciples and brings them to being bold witnesses for him to where Peter dies crucified upside down. He had a God confidence that God was at work in him. And it wasn't derived by his goodness, but it was the goodness of God that was in him that was bringing the goodness that he was seeing around him and through him. And I, I want you to learn the line and the difference between being an arrogant person who dismisses and divides and brings the flesh into the equation and being a false, humble person who cannot receive and walk confidently as a follower of Jesus in the identity that he has given you into this actual line of being a godly person that he's called you to be, trusting in the Spirit, filled with his power, and able to do the work that he's called you to do to bear his fruit and to do his purpose on earth as a kingdom citizen. But for many of us, we're just playing tag between the two extremes and we're missing the mark. And so th- this value is about us being the kind of church that when you walk in here, you're not shocked when God moves. I had a pastor ask me the other day, are you shocked at how this has gone in the first two years? And I said, honestly, no. I've just been walking with Jesus long enough to know that when you get out of his way and he begins to work through you, <laughs> of course, of course people get saved. Of course marriages get restored. Of course the altars are filled. Of course people get empowered in our sin. Of of course we go to the nations. uh, This is what God does. And and there's just this sense that comes over you when you've been walking with God enough that that allows you to go, no, I'm not not shocked. I'm not going to tell you I'm shocked that God moved. I expected a move of God as we were getting out of his way and depending on it. I expected him to show up and do what he is doing. But for a lot of us, we don't have any expectancy. We're a lot like the guy I want to talk to you about briefly today in Judges chapter 6. Finally, if you have your Bible... Open it up to Judges chapter 6 with me. Let me give you some context here. We're going to meet a man named Gideon today in this text. In chapter 5, we've just finished Deborah's song. Deborah was an awesome judge. She lived during the time of the judges, and Gideon lived during the time of the judges. This is before we had a king over Israel. They had parted the water and come through to the land that God had promised them that they were going to be in. They had built a memorial altar that was to signify to the next generation that God was faithful on the other side of the river. Therefore, he's to be trusted in on this side of the river. And now on several occasions, since they've come into the land that God has promised them, they have picked up idols and begun to worship them as God. And as a result of that, uh, they've uh, turned away from God and they've been conquered many times. In chapter 5, it ends with saying there was 40 years of peace. But then in chapter 6, they pick up old gods again and old habits and we get this story. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites. Anybody remember who the Midianites are in the Old Testament? Where did Moses go after he murdered? To Midian. Right? So it started out good as a good relationship, but it turns really bad if you study church or Old Testament history. It turns really bad really quick. So they did evil on the side of the Lord, so they were turned over to the hands of the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains and caves and strongholds, basically Woodruff. Whenever the Israelites... <laughs> Sorry, that was not in the text. That was, I'd written that in the margins, but that's... Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders uh, from Midian, Amalek, 
and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops far, as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, uh, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on the droves of camels too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Okay, some people struggle theologically with the idea that every time in the Old Testament the people drift from God, they find themselves in a perilous circumstance, and then they cry out to God, and then God comes and is like, I can save you. And it's like, does God have some kind of complex where he constantly needs to save us? And the answer is no. God, God does not need to demonstrate that he is a savior. He has no need to have to like do anything in performance to get some kind of value and response from us. But what you need to understand, that many people do not understand, is that whenever you turn your back from God and you begin to look to idols to be your God, that if God withdraws his grace from you, his common grace over you, and he allows you to fulfill or experience the fruit of those idols, what you will always find is captivity. <clears throat> This is not that God needs to do something punitive towards us. It's that if God in any way withdraws his hand of protection over us, this becomes the story. If you turn from God who is love, and you expect to find love from the idols that you've made and the relationships that you've made that aren't starting and built on God, then what you find is transactional love and not covenantal love, which isn't God's way of loving. So it's not that God's not loving, it's not that God's not caring, it's that sometimes God gives you what you're asking him for. You're looking and giving worship and honor and glory to an idol and a created thing, and you're saying, this satisfies me, this fulfills me, this makes me confident in who I am, and God says, okay, well, let's see how that works. And then you get mad at God because he lets your dead God, who can't speak or move, be the thing that you thought was going to deliver you. And all of a sudden, the raise that was going to fulfill your life and satisfy everything isn't making everyone satisfied and you're mad at the kids because they're not happy that you're providing at a new level then all of a sudden like like the promotion that was supposed to give you the status so that you wouldn't feel insecure inside so that you could be confident in the room doesn't do it and now you're still as insecure as ever you just got more titles and names around your name the people of God have turned to the gods of the Midianites and the, Amal and, and the Malachites, and as a result of that, they now get the results, the fruit of it. They have these marauders that come in and take everything away. And think about it. It's gotten so bad that they literally are hiding in the middle of nowhere just trying to survive in the seven-year period. I mean, they're just in, the, in a cave. Like, they've given up. Like, like in a second, we're going to be introduced to a character who's hiding in a place that was meant to make wine, and he's just trying to thresh out wheat to survive the next season. See, for, for a lot of us, I'm not telling you that you're not going to go through times of peril and times of suffering that are going to be difficult. But I, I do want you to know that when you have Christ, you can do more than just survive. I've seen people on their deathbed thriving and living as a kingdom citizen to the very last breath. And what many would say was their last moment was perhaps one of their finest moments. I, I just want, I want you to understand that if you have 
Christ in the story, there's reason for hope. There's reason for more than just thinking, well, we're going to get through this seven-year drought. We're going to get through this season. We're going to get through these. Like, like, like there's reason for an expectation that God is going to do something with all of the pain because he wastes no pain whenever it's entrusted to his hands. They cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said... This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery from Egypt. What, what does the prophet come to, to do? He comes to remind them. Okay. So, so if, if you want to live as a person that is expectant and seeing a move of God, you cannot get so far into your future that you forget the faithfulness of God in your past. You see, the, the, the problem that a lot of us go through is that we remember only the bad parts of our past and not the good parts of God's good work in our past. And so it's easy to remember every mistake we've made, but it's not easy to remember all the grace God gave. It's easy to remember every time you fell, but it's not always easy to look back and remember God's triumph over the failure. You see, the, the problem is not that you should never look back. The problem is, is when you look back, you should look for God in the story in the back instead of looking at your failure in the story, your shortcomings in the story. Because it's in looking back that you remember what God has done that you then can be reinvigorated with belief that he will do something in the future. See, see a lot of us, we struggle because we stopped looking back for the right Things. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I'm the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. So if that's the last line, you would think, well, God's done with us. I didn't listen. I failed and I made a mistake. Now here I am. Here's what you need to know. Just because you sometimes wait on the move of God in your life does not mean that God's not at work preparing a move in your life. In 39 years, I got to my 39th rotation of the sun this past Friday. Thank you. Obligatory. In 39 years, God's never quit on me. I've quit on God. I've fallen short. I have not come through on promises that I've made that he didn't ask me to make him. But he's never quit on me. So the story shifts from a reminder to the nation to a call to a man that's hiding in the middle of nowhere. Look at it with me, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah. So we see this term, angel of the Lord, throughout the Old Testament. We see it one time to Joseph whenever, he's, uh, whenever the angel of the Lord comes to convince Joseph that uh, he shouldn't leave Mary because the Holy Spirit is really going to conceive and give him a child. And that's a pretty good apologetic because how many men are going to stay around for a child that's not theirs uh, when they're engaged and they could just break it off? And so how, what, what would be the equation, the game changer? Maybe an angel, a theophany would show up and say, hey, you shouldn't do that. And he would go, okay, <laughs> big scary wing thing told me I'm not leaving Mary. So it looks like we're getting married and it is my child. <clears throat> So we only see it in the New Testament there. We see lots of theophanies. That's an angelic appearance that happened in the New and the Old Testament. But this is a specific title that's given to a specific person, or a specific creature. Many believe this to be Jesus uh, that's walking up in the story because he's given the divine characteristics of God. In fact, there's a moment of terror where Gideon realizes who he's dealing with, and he's ruined. 
in that moment because he recognizes this is not just an angelic creature. This is something more than. This is something greater than. And so I, I believe, after study, that this is Jesus showing up in the Old Testament, stepping into time and uniquely speaking to Gideon. Look at the story. He sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizir. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. So I just want you to get the picture. Apparently, there's a view from the tree, and he's looking down at this person who's quietly and quickly working to get some grain so that he can keep his alive this fall and this next season before these bands of marauders come and take things away. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. There is nothing mighty and there is nothing heroic about anything that's going on in Gideon's life in this moment. He's not in the valley saying, great men of Midian, bring it. He's not rallying a group uh, or a cult group uh, in, in some private quarters that are going to like uh, stage an attack. He, he's literally just trying to survive. It's not heroic. It's just survival. Sir, verse 13, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Okay. We expect a move of God. What does that mean? That means that there are settings in which we recognize more than others, that we are absolutely powerless in changing them. We feel very human and very weak, very out of control of what we wish was in our control in our minds. And these settings are the settings where a move of God is primed. I mean, how many times has a miracle happened because it was all good? I mean, I can think of one. There was a wedding and everyone was already drinking the wine and they were running out and just like, well, you know, let's do that. All right. So, like, like, like but, but in every other miraculous setting, people were going to die or had died or were handicapped in a, a significant way that had brought sorrow and grief. And, and it was in those settings where the world had no remedies that the miraculous power of God intersected. And so a lot of people in church, like if I were to say, how many of you want a miracle? <clears throat> And now we're to have the choir come back and they were saying, are you ready for a miracle? Ready, Sandy? Ah. Sister Act 2. Anyway, my point, <clears throat> my point is if I were to ask you, are you ready for a miracle? Most of you say, yes, I'm ready for a miracle. But then the, the question comes, well, what's the setting for a miracle? And that's you stopping thinking that in your scheming and worry you're going to fix it. That, that, that's you coming to a place where you are exhausted of all other options and you have nothing else to turn Two, is it not the most perilous of circumstances that set the groundwork for a miracle move of God? Is it not the places where hope is no longer expected or anticipated or even discouraged that we see a miracle and a move of God? You see, it's easy to believe in a miracle when it is happening, when there's something to see. But this value that we're talking about as a church and what we're going to see in Gideon's life is a value about being the kind of church that is anticipating the miracle and the move of God before there is anything to see. 
So do you praise God after you've seen it, or do you praise God before you've seen it? Because last I checked, we're called to actually anticipate and with hope and with longing and with prayer and with petition, go to God with the stuff that we can't fix and give it to God with the hope and the expectation that in time he will bring it for his glory and good to something better than what it is today. You see, after seven years of starving and barely surviving, Gideon does not look for or anticipate God's help. Therefore, he is taken back by the angel of the Lord, and he questions the angel of the Lord instead of believing him. You see, in order to live with this kind of expectancy that expects a move of God, you have to confront the three expectancy killers that literally spell out D-I-E. And I didn't plan that, it just happened. There's three expectancy killers in Gideon's life that kill an expectation of God's move in his life. And for some of you, you've got them in your life. Number one, the first one is doubts. Look at verse 13a. Sir Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? If God is here, then it's supposed to not be like this. That must be what the disciples thought when Jesus got arrested too. That must be where they were. Because some, something, <clears throat> something changed. Because Peter moves from being shocked by suffering to singing and rejoicing in the shackles of his suffering in prison in the New Testament. Same thing with Paul. But for some reason, there, there's a space where you have moments in your life where you go through the most difficult of times, and it makes you doubt God being with you or being near. And he says, where are all the miracles? How many of you have ever sat in church, heard a pastor talk about miracles, heard someone testify to experiencing a miracle, and you thought, well, that must be true for them, but it will not be true for me. Insert the story that seems so perilous that it's not worthy of expectation or hope. You hear miraculous stories of God bringing marriages that were literally dead and broken back to life, and you're like, yeah, that's good for them, but I don't expect, I don't anticipate that for me. So your doubts meet the Lord. If the Lord is with us, then why? You see, doubt will take you down a path of thinking that what is unchanging about God has uniquely changed in your story. Doubt takes you down the path of thinking that what is unchanging about God, He is always faithful. He is always able. You then begin to go, yes, in that story and in that story, but not in this story or in this area or in this relationship or with what's going on with those people. Doubts will take you down a path of thinking that what is unchanging about God has uniquely changed in your story. So we hear things like, God is faithful. And then we think, to everyone but me. We hear things like, God is powerful. But then we think, in every circumstance but mine. We hear things like, God is working. And then we think, in everything but my life. You see, for Gideon, it's a doubt that has led to the belief that God has forsaken a people that he has promised to never forsake. The problem is not at times in your life you're going to go through seasons where you're tempted to doubt. The problem is, is if you let doubt walk a path in your life, its destination will always lead you to thinking contradictory things about God. Have you allowed doubt to set the course for your mind to walk in your current season? Have you let doubt set the course for the path your mind is walking in this current season? Has it put you in a place that you no longer expect a move of God or the work of God to happen? What's the remedy for doubt? How do you work through doubt? Well, you remember. 13b goes on and 
recounts the history of Israel. It was recounted in verses 7 to 10, and then he even says it back. He knew of other people's stories of God. He just had yet to experience a story of God, which is a great danger that you and I can fall into because for, at times, you're going to need to borrow faith. At times, I'm going to need Keaton to remind me that God can do miracles, and I'm going to need him to, to speak and uh, show me that God is still a miracle worker through his experience because I'm going to doubt in my current season that a miracle can happen, that God will get glory in it, that good will come out of it. And so I need a community around me at times that gives me a symphony of witnesses to remind me, hey, God is not done with that yet. Don't you give up hope on that yet. Though you have to set it aside and you may move on and God graciously allows it to start to heal, don't forget that he is a God of reconciliation. And whether it's on this side of eternity or on the other side of eternity, he will reconcile all things to his name and to his throne. Therefore, we hold out hope that whether here and now or on the other side, all of it will be reconciled. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be full and complete healing and the scars will go away as we walk with the Lord, trusting and remembering him. So sometimes you've got to borrow faith. You've got to go back and remember, hey, God moved for our ancestors. God moved in our past so that you can be reminded that, hey, God's at work in this family. Like I don't care what the world has labeled us. Call us the Hatfields. Call us the McCoys. God can step in and he can work in this family. God can link us from a weak link to a strong link so that we can build a new legacy in our family. So he's borrowed faith. He's got other people's stories. He's just yet to experience firsthand his own story. The remedy for doubt is you've got to remember. Sometimes you remember other people's stories and sometimes you remember your own. For a lot of you, you've forgotten more miracles than some have ever experienced. So, so for some of you today, a, a decent assignment would be to go back through your life and begin to account the moments where you prayed and you cried out and you didn't know how you were going to get through. You thought, never could have made it, never would have made it, I would have lost it all. Mm. And then, you, then the other side is, but now I'm stronger, wiser, better, so much better, right? When you remember you get strength, like four people knew what I was singing. You, you get strength, you get strength for what you're facing today when you remember. But doubts, if they take you down the path they desire, will kill your expectation in God's work in your life. Active faith requires an active remembrance of God's work. Remember what God has done in the past to invigorate an expectancy in the present. They say is what Gideon says. They say, now Gideon has lived in peace for 40 years. He's never had to suffer, but now he's in the midst of suffering. So the Lord, in hearing his doubt, verse 13, says, go with strength. Isn't that frustrating? Can we first get an answer? Can, can I first just get, at, like, can you explain to me? how the last seven years are going to give you a peculiar glory? Can you explain to me how this is going to lead your nation and people to a greater God dependency? Can you explain to me how the death of those who have died in famine and those who have been killed by these marauding armies, how that's going to make sense? All he gets is an assignment. But forgetting he's not ready for an assignment. I need some answers. Can you relate to that? Have you ever been in a moment where you were looking for an assignment, you had a question, and God's like, here's the assignment. Here's the assignment. You see, Gideon only considers what he has. 
His response to the angel of the Lord highlights not the God who is sending, but his insufficiency to be sent. In his mind, he believes he's ill-equipped for any work of God. On top of Gideon not expecting a move of God, he definitely does not expect a move of God to happen through him. See, here's the problem. Most of the challenges you have, God's not going to miraculously step out and in spite of you do something in. Most of them, he's going to do something in you that's going to change you, and then he's going to send you changed into that. You are the conduit of his miracles. See, we're good with God from heaven shouting down and fixing it. What we're not good is God working through the Spirit in us and empowering us to overcome it. See, many of us look outside of ourselves for a miracle, but God has put His Spirit inside of us so that we could be His miracle worker. Gideon expected a move of God, perhaps, but not one through Him. What if God's move in your life is not to wave His hand over you, but to empower and send you into the fray, to confront the enemy you have hidden from, and to give you victory in a way that you never anticipated would be possible. You see, the pathway to living a non-expectant life on the work of God is to let the path of doubt lead you down. And the second one is to allow your insufficiencies to define the probability of what you're going to do. Allow your current insufficiencies to define the likelihood of whether or not God's going to move through you. Verse 15, Gideon, after recounting and arguing with God... Uh, the Lord says, go with him in strength and rescue Israel from the Midianites I'm sending you. But the Lord, but Lord, Gideon said, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest of the whole tribe of Manasseh. I don't know if you know this, but out of all the families around here, we're like the, the last family God should choose because we're from the least of the tribes of Israel. And on top of that, he, he doubles down. He says, my clan is the weakest of the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least of my entire family. In a few chapters, you're going to meet a story about a guy named Jesse that had seven sons. And they're going to think the first six are like just awesome. Abinadab, and all, he's tall, he looks like Saul, he's going to be a great choice for king. And there's going to be a runt hiding in the middle of nowhere that doesn't even get invited because he's not expected to be used by God. Now apparently they didn't know Judges chapter 6 whenever that story was going on real well because that God likes to take people who are weak and to confound the, the strong things of this world to make them go, how'd that happen? That's why I'm a pastor. No, I'm serious. I had a significant and severe stutter, a phobia of speaking in front of people. I never thought, never dreamed that this would be what I was doing. There are people that know me from back in high school, and we're going back to a house uh, this week to hang out where a lot of sin happened uh, back in high school around senior week, which is a godly time where teenagers come together to sing worship songs to the Lord at Myrtle Beach. My point, my point is this is not something that I've derived by like developing into a stronger human. I've not evolved into becoming like, oh, I, I, like this is not like I put in some really good effort. I ate lots of greens and quinoa and we cut out. Like, like, like I am what I am by the power and the work of God. I'm becoming what I'm becoming because God has not quit on me yet. Yet there are times where my insufficiencies have gotten in the way of me having a God confidence. So I've slid back into a false humility that can't walk in the power of what God's doing through me. I never will forget, I was preaching at a camp of about 650 students, and they, they, they brought several strike two kids in. That means they got one more strike, and then they're going to end up being in prison for a very long time. I was preaching the gospel one night, and I was so insecure, and I was so mad, and the week had been going rough because these kids were from the inner city of the Bay Area and from Las Vegas, which is a really rough area that they had brought in. And I'm a white kid from Moonville, South Carolina, so like, what, what, what kind of common ground do I have? Like, hey, you ever tipped a cow? I mean, like, that, that's... <clears throat> 
They're like, hey, you ever shot out of a window driving down the road? Like, yeah, my BB gun at a squirrel. What are we talking about here? Like, 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 we just didn't have a lot of common ground there. And I was struggling. I was so insecure. And so I just felt the Lord go, just preach the gospel and, and get out of my way. And I preached the gospel. In the middle of me preaching, this kid stood up and said, hey. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> yes. He's like, this true. Yeah, it's true. And this is what he said. He yelled. Why has no one told me this? And he literally walked out the back of the room. Next thing I know, we're in like a two-hour response, about 250 kids responding and giving their life to Jesus. I can't do that. I'm just the insecure dude from Moonville that's sitting there in my insecurities, not thinking that a move of God can happen. What? You see how this works? In, in his mind, he comes from the least of the tribes, and he's the least in his family. He can't be the one that God chooses. Weak clan, and I'm the weakest in the clan. Insufficiency leads to dependency. And so whenever you find yourself, here's the deal, here's the deal. When you realize you're insufficient, Satan will use it as a bad thing, but it could be the most beautiful moment of your life. Because the moment you realize you're insufficient, it invites you to a God dependence that you've never known. It invites you to clinging. It invites you to desperation. And either you become the strongest you've ever been, or you become even more insecure and hide in the darkness. You see, when, whenever you realize your insecurities, it's meant to lead to a God dependency. But if you do not allow it to lead you to God dependency, what it will lead you to is the third killer, which is excuses. Doubts, insecurities, or excuse me, insufficiency, and excuses. This is what Gideon begins to do. He knows the gap between these marauding, marauding armies and what it's going to take to overcome them. He knows the gap of his resources and his inability. He's not a trained warrior. It's not like he's a person of great skill. We get no insight into his military background or anything like that. But instead, what, what we know is, is that he's got a lot of insecurity. So he has to step into a time of testing and discerning, which a lot of us would discourage. But I don't discourage because at times you, you've got to test and discern a little bit. I'm still getting to know God. I'm learning to trust God. I trust him 70% today. I'm just going to be honest. That's where I'm at. Or I trust him 80% today. And I know I'm not supposed to, and you're a terrible Christian if you're not 100, but I'm not always 100. Sometimes I'm 90 him and 10% my bank account. So, so, that's why it's only 10. So, sometimes, I'm se sometimes I'm 70 uh, me and 30% him. I'm just going to be honest. There's, there's times where I'm like half relying on God. And I, I don't want to be, but I'm learning. And, and Gideon's struggling here. This is where he's at. Gideon replied, if you're truly going to help me, show me a sign. And Tupac then wrote a song <laughs> to prove that it's really the Lord that's speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring you my offering, he answered. I will stay here until you return. So Gideon hurried home, and he got a young goat. And with a basket of flour, he baked some bread with, uh, without yeast. Then carrying, some unleavened bread, carrying the meat in the basket and the broth in the pot, he brought them to him and, out and presented them to the angel of the Lord who was under the gate tree. The angel of the Lord, God said to him, place the meat and the unleavened bread on the rock. He goes through the whole sacrifice process. Then the Lord touched the meat and the bread and the tip of his staff and his hand and the fire and the flame came from the rock and consumed all that had been brought and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, Oh, sovereign Lord. <laughs> Didn't realize who I was messing with. Oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face, face to face. He comes through these excuses and he goes into this time of testing. It carries us all the way down through verse 24. And then what ends up happening? In realizing who he has... He goes into a different season. He moves from excuses to beginning to test and look for the call of God. And as a result of it, a move of God begins to take place. If you're going to see a move of God, you 
got to move from your doubts and your insecurities and your excuses into this. It starts in verse 25. It starts with repentance. Any move of God starts with repentance. Every great revival starts with repentance. I have, I have trusted in myself more than I've trusted in you. I'm turning to you, and I'm going to try. I don't know how, but I'm going to try to not go back to trusting in myself over trusting in you. Repentance. Verse 25 lays it out for us. That night, uh, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal. So now we get some context. His family was leading idol worship. You see, they, they had gotten so far down the path of deception that they had turned to Baal as their god. And perhaps were even like serving as conduits for his worship on their land and on their property. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when we turn to sin or to another god, that all sin is a statement of unbelief. It's always saying, God, I don't believe you are powerful enough. God, I, I, so therefore I need this drug. God, I don't believe you are able enough, therefore I need a new marriage. God, I, I don't believe... I don't believe, so all sin is a statement of unbelief. For God to move, there must be a reliance on him. The more dependent on God we become, the more positioned we are for a move of God. So, so are you in the right position for a move of God? Have you come to the point that you're at the end of yourself and you're trusting in him in a unique way? You see, we have to confront the man-made objects that we have turned to to find security and identity and value in to be reminded that they cannot deliver on what our souls are crying out for. Created things can't give us what the creator alone can give. You see, Gideon had to tear down the idol of Baal, whose shadow cast over his father's land, but never delivered his father or him from the marauders who had invaded the land. If you want to see a move of God, it starts with repentance. Number two, it then leads to dependence. It starts with repentance, it leads to dependence. Repentance leads to Dependence. They had depended on Bell, but they couldn't keep him in their back pocket. They couldn't have a backup plan if they wanted to see and experience a move of God. You see, God is the plan, and he is the insurance policy. Many of us have the belief that God is the plan, and then we have the insurance policy. God is both plan and insurance. Does this makes sense. There's not a backup. There's not a need for a diversified God portfolio. Of little g-gods, if you want to be a part of a move of God, it's him or nothing. So then it leads into a time of more testing. That's verses 33 to 40. But then we get to the last step. A move of God requires God's intervention. This is why I'm so laid back as the pastor of this church. People come to this church and they go to other churches and be like, you mad? No. Why? Because I don't own anyone. I don't own people. They're not my people. I steward them because they're his I love them because they're his. And if he decides they need to go somewhere else and they don't handle it well or I don't handle it well, that, that, what, what good is that? Right? If I really believe in the things that I'm preaching, that God assigns people to church, I'm not looking for people to be forced to be here, to be obligated to be here. I'm looking for people that feel a sense and a calling from God that this is where God would have them be, that these are the people that God would have them uh, live their life around and share their life with. It requires a dependency. Uh, excuse me, it requires an intervention. A move of God requires an intervention of God. It, it takes his hand moving. Your planning doesn't get you there. You thinking right things about God, while it helps, doesn't make a move of God happen. You're, you're not, not experiencing a move of God because you don't think rightly. You're not experiencing a move of God because it takes God to move in his time for a move of God to happen. Gideon comes out with an army of 22,000 men in chapter 7. Army is usually a numbers thing. 
I got more than you've got. My weapons are better than your weapons. We win, right? But that's not the story. The story is not about the might of men. The story is about the might of God. So God says to Gideon, you got too many. So he prunes them. Some of you are getting pruned and you think you're getting rejected. No, no, no. God, God's making sure you know beyond a shadow of a doubt it was not the economy, the economy. It was not the president. It was not your wisdom. It was not, it was not you that made this happen. No, it's, instead, he goes from 22 to 10,000. God looks at the 10,000 and says, too many. So then he says, the people that go to the water after you've done your military exercises and they put their face in the water to drink it because they're so out of shape that they can barely get their hands down there, like they're too numb to like, move their hands and arms, you're taking them. It's heavyweights and Gideon into the end of the bout. If you've seen the movie, it's the movie of Ben Stiller. It's really good. So 300 men and Gideon go to take on the entire army of the Midianites, and they deliver all of Israel. You see, a move of God requires a willingness to live in the faith space where if God does not come through, you will look foolish. But when he comes through, he will look holy. That's faith space. I can't make this happen. Marriage counseling, therapist, good ideas, Dr. Phil, Oprah, good positive thinking, good vibes, being a better version of myself most of the time except for on Friday. Woo! Like, like, like that can't make this happen. A move of God requires God. He has to move. Therefore, you have to embrace the fact that it will not change until God changes it You've got to live in that posture and that tension. Faith space. If God doesn't come through, we're going to be ruined. But when he does, he will look holy. I want us to be the kind of church and the kind of people that expect a move of God. I don't want you to go into tomorrow hoping God moves. I want you to expect he's going to move. I don't want you going into tomorrow thinking that God may show up. I want you to know that he will show up. And with it, I want him to give you a faith. A faith that will constantly cry out, God, in every season, you were able In every circumstance, you're able. In that story that I have no ability to change, and it hurts every time I think about it, you are able. I'm giving it over to your lordship instead of mine. I'm no longer stewarding it. I'm putting it in your hands and your power. You do through it what you want. I'm expecting, I'm anticipating your move. We're going to take a time of response. Our prayer team's going to be here. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. And then we're going to take communion. So, If you need prayer, would you stand and come forward? If not, let's stand and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.